I don't know if it's just uh, my impression, but I'm looking out and I'm seeing a lot of families that are here together, parents, maybe with children. And I, I don't know if you realize that you came on the right Sunday. Because <laughs> we've been in this sermon series on emotionally healthy spirituality. And we're going to talk about families today, particularly I'm going to talk about the influence and impact that families have had on us, okay? I I, I promise, your kids didn't know. When they invited you, your kids did not know. So if you're sitting there going, this is why you asked me to come to church, I don't think folks knew, but we're going to talk about this very important, powerful, and yet possibly difficult topic of the impact and influence of our families how they shaped who we are, and that in order for us to continue to mature spiritually, sometimes what this requires is for us to go back and look at the way that our families have impacted us. And by the way, when the Bible talks about family, it's not the way that we typically in the West think about family, mom, dad, brother, sister, but it's extended family, sometimes going back three, four generations. So we're talking about when the Bible talks about family, our moms, dads, our brothers, sisters, but our aunts, our uncles, our grandparents, our great-grandparents, and so on and so forth. Now, many of us grew up with uh, what Peter Scazzaro in his book calls the Ten Commandments within families. And some of these are explicit, some of these are implicit. But think right now about how some of these may have shaped who you are today. For example, Ten Commandments, we grew up believing certain things about money. I know the text is really small, so I'm going to go ahead and read it, okay, so as you follow along. These are maybe some things that we were taught that are ingrained in us about what we believe about money. Money is the best source of security. The more money you have, the more important you are. Make lots of money to prove that you made it. Anybody uh, grew up with this commandment? Here's uh, maybe what we grew up believing about conflict. Conflict. Avoid conflict at all costs. And 90% of us this morning said, amen. All right? That's what we grew up believing. Conflict. Don't get people mad at you. Or loud, angry, constant fighting is normal. By the way, just on a side note, one of the things my wife and I realize how different our families are. <laughs> like you're three into our marriage. And he goes, um, Peter, why do you guys shout at each other when you talk? I was like, what are you talking about? She's like, you shout. I'm like, what are you talking about? She's like, when you guys normally talk, you're shouting at each other. And she and I got into a big fight over that because what was shouting to her was normal talking in our family. And I realized for her, what sounded like hostile, it was normal conversation for us. Okay, anyway. Um, Sex. Sex. Sex is not to be spoken about openly. Sex. Men can be promiscuous and women must be chaste. Sexuality and marriage will come easily. What about grief and loss? Here's what some of us grew up believing. Grief and loss, sadness is a sign of weakness. You're not allowed to be depressed. Get over issues quickly or losses quickly and move on. Expressing anger. Some of us, anger is dangerous and bad. Explode in anger to make a point. Sarcasm is an acceptable way to release anger. Any of these resonate with you? 
Okay. Right? So here's the, five more. Because it is, after all, Ten Commandments. Here's six, okay? Family, you owe your parents for all they've done for you. And there's an inner groaning right now in all the Asians. You can't really hear them because they're very quiet people. But there's this, oh! Don't speak of your family's dirty laundry in public. Duty to family and culture comes before everything. Relationships, don't trust people. They'll let you down. Nobody will ever hurt me again. Don't show vulnerability. Attitudes towards different cultures. Only choose friends with people who are like you. Do not marry a person of another race or culture. Certain cultures and races are not good as mine. Success. (laughs) Oh, new community. Success is getting into the best schools. Success is making lots of money. Success is getting married and having children. Good Lord, man. Do you realize for many of us, we're sitting here going, well, that's gospel truth, ain't it? And lastly, feelings and emotions. You are not allowed to have certain feelings. Your feelings are not important. Reacting with your feelings without thinking is okay. Oh. If you're joining us today, and we're going to come back to some of these. If you're joining us today for the first time, we've been talking about emotionally healthy spirituality. And here's kind of the big theme, church family, that we've been coming around. And that is this, that emotional health and spiritual maturity are inseparable. It's not possible to become spiritually mature while remaining emotionally immature. And what I'm trying to convince all of us to do is this realization that discipleship in many of the churches we grew up in was devoid of this important component. That even though we are creating the image of God and being created the image of God has intellectual components and physical components and social components, there's this vital emotional component. And that dealing with and addressing this emotional component is critical for holistic discipleship. After all, Jesus said to us, love the Lord your God with all your what? Heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and all your strength. This image that we've been coming around is the image of the iceberg, right? The tip of the iceberg, the 10%, the observable behavior that people see, you and I on a daily, weekly basis, our spouses, our parents, our friends, that, that, that tip of the iceberg is just a part of who we are. But it's the 90% underneath, 90% underneath that makes up who we are that actually causes us to behave the way we do when nobody's looking. Causes us to behave the way we do when stress of life begins to take their toll. That it's that underneath thing that is so difficult sometimes to get to. That we've been trying to get to in this sermon series. And as I've been saying throughout, we have to give Jesus access to that area of our lives. Amen? See, Jesus isn't going to force emotional health or spiritual maturity on us. I wish he would. I wish he would drag some of us to go, I need you to deal with that hidden part that you've been unwilling to deal with. But he won't. Just as he won't drag anyone to believe in him, 
He's not going to force drag any of us to this journey. And so what we've been saying is, are we willing to give Jesus access to that underneath the iceberg stuff where so much of transformation has yet to take place? The good news, of course, is that Jesus wants to transform that part of us as well. He's not just concerned with our external behavior. He's concerned with what lies underneath. We began this journey talking about what emotionally unhealthy spiritual looks like. Saul. Then Pastor Michael last week talked about knowing ourselves so that we may know God. And today, warning, today it's going to be another heavy, heavy, heavy sermon. Because today, in order for us to know ourselves, we need to go backwards and look at our family dynamics and what family has done to us to impact who we are today. In order to go forward, sometimes it requires going backwards. And so we're going to do that difficult thing. Two biblical principles real quick, because I want you to know, if you're just joining us, is this some psychology jumble moment? We are faithful to scripture as our anchor. Amen? So we go back and we go, what are the two biblical principles that, that ground us as we look at this aspect of going backwards in order to go forwards? Here it is. First and foremost... The blessings and sins of our families profoundly impact who we are today. What happens in one generation often repeats itself in the next generation. The consequences and actions of what happens in one generation affects those that follow. Does anybody know what I'm talking about? God tied this actually in giving of the Ten Commandments when he said this in Exodus 20 verse, uh, verse 4. You shall not make for yourself an idol for I am a jealous God punishing the children for the sins of the fathers to the third and fourth generations of those who hate me but showing love to thousand generations of those who love me and keep my commandments. As one scholar noted, he was scholar noted, the word punish there actually is best translated consequences. In other words, children tend to experience the consequences of the generations that preceded them. Actions and decisions of one generation often follows the actions and decisions of the following generation. Does anybody know what I'm talking about? I've been a pastor for 20-some years, and this truth and this principle... I've seen addictive behaviors from one generation follow generations after. I've seen sexual abuse follow from one generation to another. Alcoholism, infidelity in marriage, mistrust of authority. And the list goes on and on and on. And sometimes for those of us that are sitting here and we have experienced directly this, the decisions and actions of what our parents did, those are oftentimes decisions and actions of their parents and their parents. We see this in scripture, believe it or not. And we're going to look at this today. Abram, Isaac, and Jacob in Genesis 12 to 50. There's powerful blessings that follow from one generation to the next. And then there are negative legacies. For example, we're going to see in these two generations patterns of lying in each generation. Patterns of favoritism in each generation. Patterns of siblings fighting in each generation. And poor intimacy and marriage in each generation. Here's the second biblical principle. And discipleship then requires us putting off the old patterns of our family of origin and relearning how to do life God's way in Jesus' new family. 
I have some great news today. The great news is this, that our biological family of origin doesn't determine our future. God determines our future. Amen? Amen? Hear this again. Our family of origin, even the actions and decisions and consequences of what our parents and their parents might have done to us, ultimately doesn't determine our future. God determines our future. God determines our future. The most significant language in the New Testament for becoming a Christian is this language of adoption into the family of God. Do you remember in Genesis or in Mark chapter 3, Jesus is teaching at a house and his mother and his brothers get there and they say to Jesus, hey, your brothers and your mother are here. And Jesus looks around at those that are seated at his feet and he goes, who are my brothers? Who are my brothers? Who are my sisters? It's those who do the will of God that are my brothers and my sisters and my mother. The great news is that when we get up in the family of God, we get God as our heavenly father. We get a new identity, a new name, a new inheritance, a new future. <laughs> it's amazing news. The challenge then for us is this church. The challenge for us is that many of us are not doing things that different from our family of origin. We still hold on to values and ways of relating to each other that's been imprinted to us. And God's intention is that we learn to do life in this family his way. But to do that, we need to go backwards and look at the brokenness and the sin of our original families. Remember, we can't change what we're unaware of. We can't change what we're unaware of. Those who cannot learn from the past are doomed to repeat it. Is what somebody said. So what we're going to do today is we're going to go back and look at what scripture has to say about what does it mean to be birthed into God's new family. Because the more we know about our new families. And the more we look at what it is that God intended for us. We can re- learn to do life. Okay, now let me say a couple of things. A couple of things and then I'm going to jump into scripture. Number one is this. All of us come from families where there's been some level of brokenness. It's just varying degrees. Amen? Amen. All of us. Now some of us came from amazing families. And you're very fortunate. Matter of fact, today, one of the things that will happen is this. Some of us will sit here and go, it is purely by God's grace that I was brought up in the family I was brought up in. Grace is something that we receive and we have nothing to do with it. Do any of us have anything to do with the good families we grew up in? Answer, no. So some of us will get a new appreciation for God's grace. Some of us, some of us, this will happen. We will gain a new appreciation for God's grace in this way. We'll realize, we'll realize in the next two weeks actually, we'll realize that our families and our parents did the best they could. And they made some mistakes, but they did the best they could. And even as we learn, you know what? These are some of the things I learned. These are some of the things I'm going to continue to do. But these are some things I learned and I will not do these things. Perhaps a new appreciation for what our families we're able to contribute to us might happen. And then there's some of us who come from tremendously difficult, broken families. In the next two weeks, because I need to spend two weeks on this. Pastor Michael says, looking at this, all of these, each topics, we could spend two, three weeks on them because they're such massive topics. 
So this week and next week, we're going to talk about family origin because it's one of the most important ones. What we're going to learn is that the more we learn about our families, the more we can learn about who we are. So that we could emerge a freer, more whole person follower of Jesus and say, these are the things that I'm going to do. These are the things that I'm not going to do. So in the next two Sundays, we're going to spend time looking at the three generations of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And we're going to look at what happened in this family, how God worked in this family. And then we're going to ultimately come away from the next two Sundays looking at the fact that in order to go forwards, we need to go backwards. But ultimately, God is at work the whole time. Turn your Bibles with me to Genesis 37. Genesis 37 is where we pick up this story of Joseph, who's growing up, who's growing up in a blended family with enormous amount of brokenness and sin. You know, somebody said that the level and number of secrets in a family gives an indication of the level of its health and maturity. Joseph's family is one sick family, okay? It is one sick family, This family appears in Genesis 37, and we see Joseph as a 17-year-old. He is the 11th of 12 sons and the favorite of his father, Jacob. We're going to look at this story again this Sunday and next Sunday. I'm sensing uneasiness. You guys okay? Are you okay? Okay. Remember, we're here for you and we're here with you, church. This is a difficult, it's going to be difficult two Sundays, but I'm going to say this again. We could choose to live facing truth and reality. Or we could continue to ignore and be in denial of who we are and never grow up. So let's look at this family. And see some of the principles that we could glean from this. Genesis 32, verse two, 37, verse 2. So this is the count of Jacob's family line. Joseph, a young man of 17, was tending the flocks with his brothers, the sons of Bilhah and the sons of Zilpah, his father's wives. And he brought their father a bad report about them. Make a note of that. A bad report about them. Verse 3. Now Israel loved, that's Jacob, loved Joseph more than any of his other sons because he had been born to him in his old age and he made an ornate robe for him. So here's Jacob, the patriarch of this blended family. And the Bible says that he loved Joseph more than any of his other kids. The story behind that is a little convoluted. Here's a short caption of it. Jacob himself grows up in a family where his father blatantly favored his older brother over him. Do you remember that story? Blatantly favored him. So what happens to uh, Jacob? Jacob grows up with this huge inner neediness. Huge need to be affirmed. Huge need to be validated. So Jacob does what some of us do, which is my dad didn't do this for me. So then he goes, if I could just find somebody who I can love, my life will be okay. Sound familiar? Nobody can relate to that. Okay. So Jacob fixes his eyes on a woman. Her name is Rachel. Rachel was a beautiful woman. And Jacob fixes his heart on Rachel. And Jacob says, if I could just have Rachel, my life would be okay. 
Good Lord. I know. (laughs) Do you know how often I see this? Do you know how often I see young adults, 20-somethings, and I could talk about 30, 40, 20-somethings who grow up with this Indian neediness because you weren't validated, affirmed by your parents. And you think that the way to solve that is if I could just find somebody who could, then it'll fix everything. And so Jacob does that. He finds Rachel and he says, if I could just get Rachel to love me, my life will be okay. So he does marry Rachel. He does fix his heart on her. And Rachel has two kids, Joseph and Benjamin. And she dies giving birth to Benjamin. So what does Jacob do? The Bible says that Jacob favored Joseph, the apple of his eye, more than any of his other children, which is That's just bad parenting, okay? Anyway, so what does Jacob do? The Bible says he made him an ornate robe. Some of your translations say multicolored, richly ornamented. There's various ways to translate it. The Hebrew is a little hard to explain. But the the best way to explain it is that it was a richly ornamented, the key word being rich. In other words, Jacob lavishes money on his son Joseph. And where your treasure is, they're your what? Heart. If you're sitting there going, do parents actually do that? I was a youth pastor for eight years. I was a youth pastor for eight years. And I was amazed at how parents think, if I just buy you stuff, if I just give you stuff, that's what Jacob does. Jacob lavishes money. He favors son. And that, listen, poisoned the entire family. Look at what happens. Verse 4. When his brothers saw their father loved him more than any of them, they hated him and could not speak a kind word to him. So hate is growing in their hearts for their sibling. Verse 5. Joseph had a dream. And when he told it to his brothers, they hated him all the more. He said to them, listen to this dream I had. We're binding sheaves of grain out in the field when suddenly my sheaf rose and stood upright while all your sheaves gathered around mine and bowed down to it. His brother said to him, so you intend to reign over us? Some of you are like, that sounds like our conversation at home. Will you actually rule us? And they hated him all the more because of his dream and what he had said. Hebrew is very, the language Hebrew that is, is very sparse with its words. It doesn't unnecessarily use words. It doesn't repeat itself unnecessarily like your pastor, you know. I like to repeat myself. You don't find that in original Hebrew. So when it says something three times, it's saying, this is huge. They hate him. Do you know what it's like to hate your siblings? Let me ask you something. If you tell your siblings about a dream you had and they hate you and it's pretty obvious what the meaning of the dream is. They, they hate you. They hate you. What does a self-aware person do when you have another dream that says 
Oh, what does Joseph do? <laughs> Verse 9. And he had another dream. And he told it to his brothers. Some of you are like, I've never seen the story of Joseph like that. What does an emotionally healthy, self-aware person do when you go, I said this to them and they hated my guts, like murderously hateful. What does an emotionally, somewhat self-aware person do? You go, what? I have this effect on people. So maybe I'll keep shut and maybe keep quiet this time. Joseph goes, oh, I can't wait to tell him. Listen, he said, I had another dream. This time the sun and the moon and the 11 stars were bowing down to me. When he told his father, as well as his brothers, his father rebuked him. Remember, Joseph is Jacob's favorite. And the word rebuke there is really strong word. In other words, the way that Joseph is telling this dream is completely arrogant and demeaning that even Jacob has to go, whoa, 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 whoa. And Jacob said, what is this dream you had? Will your mother and I and your brothers actually come and bow down to the ground before you? Verse 11, his brothers were jealous of him. What's happening to Joseph? Two things. So his brothers are turning into murderously hateful people. What's happening to Joseph? First of all, he's turning into this massive liar. Teach you go, where, where do you see that? Do you remember way up in verse 2 when I said, when I said that he, he brought Jacob a bad report? About, the word bad report literally in Hebrew means a lie, a false representation. So we have in Joseph a young man who is turning into a liar. And for those of you that are counselors, the other thing is, what do you call someone who is pathologically insensitive to the effect that he has on other people? What do you call them? You call them a sociopath. He is completely unaware of the effect that he has on those around him. At worst, Joseph is becoming an evil person, an arrogant person, and a cruel person. Underneath the veneer of this really nice, put-together family, there's depths of sin and brokenness. There's a volcanic eruption waiting to happen. You have a father who's totally oblivious to the fact that he completely favors one child and it's poisoning his family. You have siblings who are becoming murderously hateful towards each other. And then you have Joseph who is turning into a cruel, arrogant, lying, possibly egomaniac. And by the way, this is the family that God uses to birth the Messiah. Is that good news? Church, is that good news? There is hope for us. Two things real quick before we move on. And this is so important. And if you've been around New Community, you will hear these over and over and over again because it is what the Bible is about. First, Christianity is not about tradition or religion or religiosity. It's about the gospel of grace. Where do you see that? You see this on every page of the Bible. Here's the difference between tradition of religion and what the gospel says. Tradition of religion says, here are some rules and principles of right living, and here are models and good examples for you to emulate. Now live like them, and God will bless you. We have romanticized these Sunday characters. Do you see any model citizens in this story, church? 
Do you see any person we should emulate and model after? Jacob needs a basic par- uh, uh, basic uh, seminar in parenting. Joseph is be turning into a sociopath. And his brothers are becoming absolutely hateful people. There's brokenness upon brokenness. There's bitterness. There's hatred. There are no models here to emulate. If you're sitting here today, because somebody invited you, and you're like, what is Christianity? Is Christianity just... Here's a bunch of rules. Here's some great people to follow. And if you live like them, God will bless you. Here is the message of Christianity. The message of Christianity cannot be more different. Because the message of Christianity says, guess what? Because of what Jesus has done, God's grace breaks into your life. Sometimes despite our sinfulness, despite our brokenness, and saves us from brokenness and sin, we otherwise would never be able to overcome on our own. Is that good news? Message of Christianity is not. Here's Jacob. Follow him and God will bless you. Here's Joseph. Follow him and God will bless you. The message of Christianity is that God's grace is given to people who don't deserve it and who don't even realize that they have it even after they receive it. God's grace breaks into our lives despite us, in spite of us, and yes, despite our family of origin to heal us and to redeem us and to save us from sin and brokenness we otherwise would never be able to overcome on our own. Is that good news? Is that anybody's story here this morning? Can anybody here this morning say, given the family I came from, I should be strung out on the street or dead, but God. Is there anybody else whose testimony is, given the family, given the parents that I had, I should be totally and utterly messed up, but God. Is there anybody else here that is saying, given some of the decisions and choices in life that I made, I have no business being where I am today, Peter. But God, is that good news? Oh, church. Do you know how strong you and I would be if the God, here's the amazing thing, the gospel, the Bible does say there's one person who did do it perfectly. His name is what? Jesus. Does the Bible say now follow and model after him so that God could accept you? Heck No. The Bible says he came because you couldn't do what you needed to do to save yourself. So he lived the life you should have lived. He died the death you should have died. And when you place your faith in him and his work on the cross and resurrection, God now treats you as if you had lived the life that he lived and died the death that he died. And it is out of that truth will you ever have the motivation and power to obey. I need y'all to be reminded of the gospel this morning. Some of us grew up with these felted storyboards and somebody told us in Bible Sunday school, be like Joseph. You don't want to be like Joseph. Not here at least. Later on. These characters are not there to give us moral examples. They're there to show us. You see how God breaks into his life despite him? That's the gospel. 
Oh, church. Second truth that we need to come around is this. Community. Community. You need to experience community to experience healing from brokenness. I know you don't want to hear this. I know people in America don't want to hear this. But you are not a self-made person. You are not a product of your own individual choices. You know your parents. You know the faults you hated about them. You know the things about your parents. You're like, oh, guess where they are right now. Say it with me. In me. And you, things that have been done to us are just as powerful, if not more, than things that have been done by us. And the Bible says this, you can't experience healing and brokenness from those things on your own. I know what y'all are trying to do. You go to Barnes and Noble, some bookstore, you get some self-help stuff, and you go back to the appendix of the index, and you go, here are the 10 steps that you need to do. Now do them. And God, what do you, the Bible says community is what messed you up. Community is what will heal you. Say this with me. Say this with me. Community is what hurts you. Community is what will heal you. You can't, please listen. You can't heal yourself. You can't. And I've been saying this for the last six months. It is also true and not to go, well, God will heal me. Yes, God heals you. But you know what he often uses to heal you? community, relationships. Think about this. We can't even see our flaws, our character flaws, if not for other people. The whole point of self-deception is that we are not able to see the ways in which we ourselves are deceived. We need other people to show us. Do you have people in your life that you've given permission to say, hey, Will you point out what's wrong with me? Hey, will you tell me ways in which I am not walking in the way of Jesus? That means that if you're the type of Christian who just drops in here and there, you don't want to be accountable, you don't want to be committed, you don't want to be part of a group of people who are lovingly walking with you, the mistakes, the flaws, the sins, the faults that have been ingrained in you, you won't be able to overcome them on your own. Do you ever think about this way? Do you ever think about why God says he wants a relationship with us? Think about it. Why does God say he wants a relationship with us? Because it is in the context of a relationship that our Heavenly Father shows us our flaws, our sins. But it's also in the context of that relationships as we go on this amazing journey that God begins to work in us. Oh, church, commute. I need to say this one last time for one. Do you have a group of people that you are being reparented, that you are doing life with? And I'm not just talking about a group of people we just get together once a week just to have shallow, superficial conversations and pray a prayer and go home. I'm talking about, hey, do you see me? Hey, do you see me? Do you see? Because I've given you permission. Do you see the depths of me? And will you not give up on me? Will you walk with me? Will you journey with me? Will you speak truth and love to me? Community is what hurt us. Community is what will heal us. Let's finish the rest of this story. And again, I'm said this several times I just, need to, I just need to lay a foundation so we can come back next week and dig really deep in to some of the ramifications verse 12 now his brothers had gone to graze their father's flock near Shechem 
Verse 13, And Israel said to Joseph, As you know, your brothers are grazing the flocks near Shechem. Come, I am going to send you to them. Very well, he replied. So he said to them, Go and see if all is well with your brothers and with the flocks, and bring word back to me. Then he sent him off from the valley of Hebron. When Joseph arrived at Shechem, a man found him wandering around in the fields and asked him, What are you looking for? He replied, I'm looking for my brothers. Can you tell me where they're grazing their flocks? Verse 17, they've moved on from here, the man answered. I just heard them say, let's go to Dothan. Okay. Verse 18, but they saw him in the distance and before he reached them, they plotted to kill him. Verse 19, here comes that dreamer, they said to each other. Come now, let's kill him and throw him in one of these cisterns and say that a ferocious animal devoured him. Then we'll see what comes of his dreams. When Reuben heard this, he tried to rescue him from their hands. Let's not take his life, he said. Don't shed any blood. Throw him into this cistern here in the wilderness, but don't lay a hand on him. Reuben said this to rescue him from them and take him back to his father. Verse 23. So when Joseph came to his brothers, they stripped him of his robe, the ornate robe he was wearing. By the word stripped, literally used to skin an animal. It is a violent, violent act. They stripped him. In verse 24, they took him and they threw him into the cistern. The word threw, it's not just a generic word for throw. It means to dump a dead body into a grave. And when that Hebrew word is used for a living person, it literally means to abandon them to die. And we know in chapter 42, what you'll kind of pick up next week, that Joseph The image there is Joseph is saying, don't leave me here. Help me. Save me, somebody. He's crying out. Verse 25. As they sat down to eat me. How, how hateful and cruel do you have to be? Hey, you do this to your brother. You're like, what's for dinner? And enjoying their meal, they looked up and saw a caravan of Ishmaelites coming from Gilead. Their camels were loaded with spices, balm, and myrrh, and they were on their way to take them down to Egypt. Verse 26, Judah said to his brothers, what will we gain if we kill our brother and cover up his blood? Verse 27, come, let's sell him to the Ishmaelites and not and not lay our hands on him. After all, he is our brother, our own flesh and blood. I'm sorry, maybe I'm just cynical, but I'm going, because you know, that's way better than killing him. Let's just sell him and not, anyway. Okay, you didn't think that was funny. Okay, verse 28. I find humor in tragedy, sort of. Verse 28. So when the Midianite merchants came by, his brothers pulled Joseph up out of the cistern and sold him for 20 shekels of silver to the Ishmaelites who took him down to Egypt and jump all the way up to verse 36. Meanwhile, the Midianites sold Joseph in Egypt to Potiphar, one of the Pharaoh's officials, the captain of the guard. Church, 
I just need to set you up for next Sunday. And before I set you up for next Sunday, here's what I want us to do. What do we learn from this? And we'll come back to next week. Some of you already know the story. Joseph goes on here from this point, a 40-year journey. 10 of those years, by the way, or 10, 11 years, in a prison for being falsely accused of rape and being forgotten by somebody who could potentially save him. But he goes on this journey, and at the end of this, and we'll pick it up next week in Genesis 45 and 50, he ends up the prime minister of Egypt, second most powerful prime minister of Egypt. And unbeknownst to everyone, there is a famine coming that is threatening to wipe out that entire known world. And Joseph has been put in a position where he could not only save his family, thereby continue the messianic line, but save tens of thousands of lives. Now, there is a truth here that if you and I were ever to come around and embrace, it would utterly transform not only our perspective of our past, our present, our future, but it would utterly, utterly, utterly transform uh, God, God could do this early transforming work. And here's, here's the truth. Here's the truth. And I can only just say it to you. And God the Holy Spirit will have to do his work. The truth that we will come around and that we need to come around is this. Every single one of these events needed to happen exactly the way they happened. In the order they happened. Or else everybody in the story is lost. Let me say that again. What we see is every single one of these happens, the events needed to happen exactly the way they did, in the order they did, otherwise everyone is lost. And if you're sitting there, you've been paying attention, you're saying to yourself, even the chaotic things, Peter, even the chaotic things. Even the awful things, Peter. Even the awful things. Even the tragic things, Peter. Even the tragic things. And here's the amazing thing. You ready? God never speaks in this story. God is never referred to in this story. This is the only story in the entire book of Genesis where you'll find that. In every other story, you see God speaking and God powerfully moving. In this story, God seems to be utterly absent. But that is the beauty. That is the beauty of this narrative and this story. Because what the author of Genesis is saying this, that God was managing every detail. That God was orchestrating every event. And for me, and for some of you, the greatest news, that God is actually overruling and overwhelming the evil and the cruelty of their sin and their brokenness to ultimately bring about salvation and redemption to this family and to the world. When things looked to the human eye to be going the most wrong, the author of Genesis saying that is precisely when God was most working for our good. Does anybody believe that?
Does anybody believe that this morning? Here's the truth that if you and I, and it's hard, but if we were to come around and embrace, it would utterly transform us. And that is this. God's silence was not his absence and God's hiddenness was not his impotence. Let me say it again. God's silence was not his absence and God's hiddenness was not his impotence. When things to the human eye looked to be the most wrong, God was most working out his purposes. That means that if you are sitting here today, I am standing here today, and we look at the surface of our lives and go, I conclude exactly what God is doing. We might be making one of the biggest mistakes of our lives. Do you know who believed this? Do you know who believed this? Joseph. Joseph. The most powerful, powerful scene in Genesis is when Joseph finally meets his brothers and his brothers recognize that the second most powerful man on Egypt, in Egypt, is the brother that they skinned like an animal and left abandoned to die. And there's this beautiful scene where they realize, that's our brother. And they realize he could kill us with a word, with a word. And what does Joseph say? Genesis 45, verse 4. I am your brother Joseph, the one you sold into Egypt. Verse 5. And now do not be distressed and do not be angry with yourselves for selling me here. Because it was to save lives that God sent me ahead of you. God sent me ahead of you to preserve for you a remnant on earth and to save your lives by a great deliverance. We're saying, so then it was not you who sent me here, but say with me, but God. And then we find this in Genesis 51, which will come next week. You intended to harm me, but God intended it for good to accomplish what is now being done, the saving of many lives. How strong would we be if we believe this? Are you listening to me this morning? Is this too much to take in? How strong would we be if we looked at our families, we looked at our lives and relationships and said, what you intended to harm me for? God is ultimately going to work for his good. Amber, is this good news? Church, is this good news? How strong would, I'm sorry, I'm shouting. How strong would we be? How strong would you and I be? I'm serious. If we believe that in all things, God of history is at work in spite of, through, and against even human effort to accomplish his good purposes. How strong would we be if we believed that God never loses any of our past for his future? How strong would we be if we believed that every sin, every mistake, and yes, even every detour is used by God to accomplish his purposes? 
If you have any questions on whether you can believe this, how do you make sense of that? If you have any questions, can you, God, use tragedy, suffering, and yes, evil and what men intended for harm for good? How can you look at the cross and not conclude that our God brings about a resurrection even from death? I love the cross. I love the cross because it reminds me that what that person meant for harm, God will cause it for good. The cross reminds me that nobody, nobody can derail God's dream for you. Misty, I need you to listen to this. Nobody can derail God. God has a dream for you, sister, and nobody, not your mama, not your dad. Not your siblings. Nobody can derail God's dream for you. Is that good news? God has a dream for you. And some of you are like, I can't see it. Try telling a 17-year-old Joseph what God's dream for him was like. And he would have been like, I don't think so. God has a dream for you. And nobody can derail God's dream for you. Is that good news? Church, sometimes my wife and I, we look at each other. We look at our kids and we go... They got all kinds of flaws. We didn't do it right. Parker's already 11 years old. He's got some of your faults and he's got some of my faults. Mostly your faults. But he's just, we just, we just don't know. And then I'm reminded, I can't, my wife can't derail God's plans for my children. Nothing we can do can derail God. How strong would you be if you sat here today and you're going, Peter, you have no idea the brokenness and the mess that I come from. How strong would you be if you sat there and you believed God's dream for you cannot be derailed by any human being? Oh, thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you. And if you're sitting there going, well, you know, I made, I made some mistakes, man. And I, I, I don't know, maybe God has me on plan B. Look at this family. <laughs> plan B, the savior of the world came out of this family. I'd call that plan A. Can I get an amen? There's no plan B for your life. That's the point. God's dream for you can never be derailed by human effort, human ingenuity, human plans. Not your parents, not your grandparents, not your siblings, not anybody on the face of this planet. We have a God who turns all deaths into resurrections. We have a God who never will create the evil, who never will create the cruelty we see here, but he is so great, so sovereign, so loving, that eventually the evil would destroy itself. A God who turns all deaths into resurrection. Is this good news, anybody? What do you learn? What do I learn? Again, I'm just setting you up for next week. There's nothing, there's nothing that can derail God's plan for you. And God often works the most 
when God seems to be the most hidden. And we'll say it again. God often works the most when God seems the most hidden. That means if you're the type like me that goes, I know exactly what God's doing. He's got to do this. He's got to do this. He's got to do this. And when it doesn't happen, my conclusion is not, Peter, humble yourself and submit to the Lord. My conclusion is, what happened, God? I thought we were on the same page. Know and not know what God is doing. Don't think that you could look at the surface. I'm telling you, church, oh my gosh, oh, I know this is hard. I know this is challenging. But don't look at just the surface of your life and go, I know exactly what God is doing. Because when that scenario falls apart, what are you left with? Know and not know. Know that God is working for you. Know that God's arms are under you. Just don't assume that you know exactly what he's doing. Amen? And secondly, and lastly, maybe you're somebody who's in a pit and you've been crying out to God. You're in a pit and you're crying out to God. And you feel abandoned. And you feel utterly alone. And yes, I should say this, I'm thinking of specific people in our church family. How could I not but leave you with the gospel? Amen? Because here's the truth that will come around. I know I keep saying for a thousand times, next week, next week, because I want you to be here next week so we can conclude this amazing story of the reconciliation between Joseph and his family. Do you realize, church, that centuries later, someone else came to his own brothers and they received him not. John 1 verse 12, 14. Do you realize that centuries later another someone came who was sold for pieces of silver? Do you realize that centuries later another one came who was stripped naked and abandoned to die. Do you realize that someone else came centuries later and he cried out, he cried out in the darkness and in the pit. Why? Why? But his abandonment, his nakedness, was deeper and greater than anything Joseph ever went through. Because when Jesus is hanging on the cross, he is not just being stripped of his clothes, he is being stripped of his heavenly Father's love. The ultimate Joseph is being stripped of his heavenly father's love. And if you ask the question, well, why is he doing that? He is being punished for our pride, for our arrogance, for our self-absorption, for the sins of us and our families. Do you know why that's important? I'll tell you exactly why. Haven't been a pastor for all these years and haven't been a Christian for all these years. When suffering hits, do you know the first place I go to? The first place that I go to is maybe I'm being punished. Maybe I'm not living right. 
Maybe if I read the Bible. Anybody else? That's the first place that I go to. And the only thing that could save me, give me confidence and trust to stand and to trust him is knowing that the ultimate Joseph came and was abandoned in the darkness and in the pit so that you and I would never, ever have to wonder, am I being punished because he took all my punishment. All of it. And even though, and I say this a thousand times, in this journey of life, in a world filled with evil and cruelty, we may not know ultimately why this side of heaven, some things happen, but we know what the reason isn't. The reason is not God has abandoned you. The reason is not he is hiding. The reason is not he is silent. And the reason most certainly is not he doesn't love you. That God is the only God in the world who says, I'm in that pit with you. I'm in that pit for you. How could I not love him? How could you not worship him? How could we not trust him? Next week, we look at the conclusion of this amazing story of reconciliation. Seemingly, humanly speaking, impossible reconciliation between Joseph, his brothers, and his parents. Pray with me. This whole week, I specifically prayed for three groups of people. This whole week, I specifically prayed, first and foremost, for those of you who have deep wounds and scars from your imperfect family. I pray that you would know in the depth of your heart nobody, that nobody can derail God's dream for you. Not your family, not you, not anybody. I also pray this week for those of you that we're going to be sitting here not knowing that the essence of the gospel is not about emulating, modeling heroes of faith to earn salvation, but that you would come to realize that the only person who ever did it right 
did it for you. And that is by faith in His work that you are saved. And then lastly, I pray this week for many of us here who've made bad, poor decisions, who are currently making bad, poor decisions. And we're wondering, God, am I beyond redemption? Mit.